Life Bridge. Glad you're here and welcome to you and anyone else that's watching. Everyone is welcome to hear the good news that we have to share this morning. This is typically our discovery hour at LifeBridge from 9.30 to 10.30, and we have classes for all ages and stages, and we seek to bridge the gap between learning and living. And what we're doing now is uh, during our stay-at-home orders, I'm teaching at this time, and so I'm glad you're here. Anyone's welcome. You can share. You can uh, like, you can comment, you can invite others to join us, and Lord willing, we'll be here at 9.30 each Sunday morning. So, we're in a study of Isaiah 53 called Behold the Gospel According to Isaiah. And this series answers the most important question in life. Now, that question is not, where can we find toilet paper? In fact, you know, I read this week that reason there's this run on toilet paper is because literally we're in our homes the whole time. People use 40% more toilet paper when they're staying at home. Think about, well, don't think about that. But anyway, it was interesting. And the most important question is not when are we going to get out of our houses and when can we come back and gather as a church. As important as that is, as biblical as that is, and as much as we look forward to that, the most important question in all of life is this. How can God exercise His holy love in saving sinners and not be unholy in doing it? And this is what Isaiah 53 answers. And two weeks ago, in fact, it answers it in five segments through this song of the suffering servant. And so two weeks ago, we saw the way God can do this is through the, sovereign, the servant's sovereign success. And we saw Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. And then last week, we saw that the reason the Lord can do this and remain loving and holy at the same time is because of the servant's shameful suffering. But what we're going to see this morning is we're coming to the heart of Isaiah 53. We're coming to the heart of the book of Isaiah. We're coming to the heart of the Old Testament, and for that matter, the New Testament. We're coming to the heart of the gospel. And the answer to the question of how God can be holy and just and loving in saving sinners and not compromise his character is because of his servant's sacrificial substitution. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And we're going to pick it up and let's just read to where we have been. So look at Isaiah 52, 13. Isaiah 52, 13. And follow along with me in your Bibles. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, this is how, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. 
So who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground, unimpressive and not having really many prospects. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And then here comes the three verses for this morning. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to open your word. And though this is Palm Sunday, it's not the Palm Sunday we expected. It's not what we usually celebrate and how we do it. And it's just different. But Lord, perhaps this Palm Sunday is more like your Palm Sunday than any other Palm Sunday we have experienced. Because we are experiencing the isolation, we are experiencing the separation, the anxiety of this virus, the fear of disease, and the lament that we offer up to you, O Lord, for lives that are entering into eternity, many of which have not heard this good news. And Lord, they are not statistics. They are people, people like us, people with the same needs, People who need to hear the good news. So, Lord, I pray, open our ears that we may hear. Open our eyes that we may see. And, Lord, most of all, open our hearts that we may be doers of the word and not hearers only. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the big question that verses 4 through 6 ask us is this. Why did the servant of the Lord have to suffer so shamefully? We saw last week in verses uh, 1 through 3 how the servant suffered so shamefully. But why was this necessary? And the answer that we're going to see this morning in these three verses is this. Because sinners like us need a sinless substitute to be our sin bearer and sufficient sacrifice. That's what these three verses about. In fact, here's what we know. God himself knew that the lost sheep, that lost sheep like us, needed what theologians call penal substitution, substitutionary atonement. And you're like, Chris, those are three big words on a Sunday morning. And they are, but they are the heart of the gospel. These three verses explain for us Penal Substitutionary Atonement. Now, I have in your notes, if you downloaded the notes, 
uh, and I have it up here on the screen. Here's a, a theological doctrinal definition. God, because in His mercy, He willed to forgive sinful men, and being truly merciful, willed to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin, purpose to direct against his own very self in the person of his son the full weight of that righteous wrath which they deserve. Now that, John Stott says, is the best definition of penal substitutionary atonement. Let me make it simpler, and this is how I think about it. It's God satisfying himself by substituting himself in his son for the sake of saving Sinners, God satisfying himself, his holy wrath, by substituting himself in the person of his son for the sake and for the love of saving sinners. Now, let me be real clear with you up front. This is the heart of the gospel, but many professing Christians uh, will reject this teaching. And I hope I will show you that it's biblical. And they call this some form of cosmic child abuse. They would reject penal substitutionary atonement and they would agree with a popular British writer who said this about this doctrine. The fact is, and I quote, the fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing the son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to the faith. Deeper than that, he goes on to say, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, quote, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching of to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil, end quote. So obviously, when it comes to penal substitutionary atonement, there are those that believe it is biblical and there are those who reject it as some form of cosmic child abuse. But here's what I want you to see before we get in to this. Jesus was not a child on the cross. He was the Son of God, the suffering, suffering servant who freely chose to offer himself up for sinners and to do the will of the Father. He was there because he chose to be there. We'll see that more next week. Also, God the Father was not the angry one and Jesus was the loving one. Because the reality is both Jesus and the Father are holy in their love and holy in their wrath. And then finally, I would say this to you. The more we see the holiness of God and the more we then see the sinfulness of ourselves, the more we will conclude that we must have a sacrificial substitute to mediate and, and take upon himself the punishment and the wrath that we so much deserve. But let me say this. No one will solve this greatest question. No one will solve, solve this problem of how a holy God 
can be loving and forgiving and yet not be unjust by human reasoning. It will require divine revelation. And that's what the first word in verse 4 really tells us about. The first word in verse 4 tells us that surely, surely tells us that a radical change takes place between verses 3 and 4. You see, in verse 3, they had assumed and thought that the suffering servant was suffering for his own sins. And so they said, oh, what a, a man of sorrows. He's suffering the pain of his sins. What a man of sin sickness, getting exactly what he deserves. And so they esteemed him not as worthy of their worship. And instead, according to verse 4, they esteemed him to be stricken, struck down, and judged by God himself. But now, now they're saying a radical change in their perspective, in their hearts, has taken place. Surely now they see that the cross was not the servant suffering for his own sins, but the cross was the servant suffering for their sins, for our sins. They thought he was getting what he deserved, but now surely they realized that he was getting what they deserved and not what he deserved at all. And so this surely really emphasizes a radical change in their estimation of the suffering servant. But it also emphasizes a radical change in the substitution of the he for the we. So I just want to take you through four verses four through six. And I just want you to look in your Bibles and see how the, the he and the we are substituted for one another. Notice on verse four, it was our griefs that he himself bore. It was our sorrows that he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He, his chastening resulted in our peace and his scourging resulted in our healing. But look at verse 6. All of us, the we is all of us, are lost sheep, but the Lord has caused all of our sin to fall on him. Now, if you're at home there and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want you to kind of jump up and down and just shout glory, glory, glory. Because this is God's amazing grace taught through the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And this is good news. So what they're saying is they move into these three verses, the we in this, in this passage, is surely we got it wrong before. But surely now, by God's grace, by the revelation of God that has opened up our hearts, we now see the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in a way that we hadn't seen before. And now through the proclamation of the gospel, we understand that he was suffering for our sins. He was getting what we deserved. And he was our sacrificial 
substitute. So here's the bottom line. You and me become a part of the we. We talked about that last week. You and me become a part of the we because of what He did in our place. You and me become a part of the we of God's saved remnant because of what He and He alone did in order to be our substitute. Well, that's just the first word. Let's dive in to all three verses here. Why did the Lord's servant have to suffer so shamefully? First point, very simple, verse 4, He took our punishment. He took the punishment that we deserved. This is where the penal or the punishment part of penal substitutionary atonement comes in. There at verse 4. And what we see there is that the servant becomes our peace. His punishment becomes our peace. One commentator put it this way, He is our peace punishment. So look at verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. So before, it was the servant's griefs and the servant's sorrow. Now they're saying, whoa, no, He's being punished for our sins and for our sin-sick lifestyle. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Now they got one thing right. The suffering servant was being judged by God, struck down and delivered a death penalty by God for sin. What they got wrong was it was not his sin. It was their sin, your sin and my sin. And so what I want to emphasize is that the bearing and carrying, it says he bore and he carried. The bearing and carrying is the language of the book of Leviticus, and it is the sacrificial system of Israel. It's the language of the sacrificial system of Israel. You remember the sacrificial lamb, the sins of the the worshiper, He would lay his hands on the head of the sacrificial lamb and his sins would be identified with that innocent, unblemished lamb. And then that lamb would be punished and and receive the punishment that the worshiper who was a sinner deserved. And so he would not only suffer because of the worshiper, he would suffer and die in the place of the worshiper. And it's not just the sacrificial lambs. It's the Day of Atonement. Once a year, there would be called the scapegoat, where a goat would be brought out, and the high priest of Israel, once a year on the Day of Atonement, would lay his hand on the head of the goat, and the sins of the people for that year would be identified, and that goat would bear those sins. And then... They would release the goat and he would carry their sins into the wilderness and away from them. But they had to do that every year, every year. And a new goat and a new goat. And every year he, a scapegoat would be released. Why? Because ultimately it's not the blood of an animal that can bear our sin and carry it away. It must be the blood of a human being, but it must be a sinless human being. And that's what is happening here. Let me illustrate it this way. The servant lifts up the burden of our sin, the weight of our guilt, the weight 
of our sin. And he lifts up that burden of guilt and shame and deserving of wrath. And he places it on his own shoulders on the cross. This is Palm Sunday. That's anticipation of what's coming on Good Friday. This is why Good Friday is a good Friday, even though Christ, the Lamb of God, died, because he was bearing our sins and carrying them away. And you may ask, Chris, how far did he carry them away? How far did he carry them away? The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. As far as you can go. If you try to figure out how far the east is from the west, you head in that direction, you'll never find it. When we look at Jesus on the cross and we ask, Jesus, how much do you love us? He says, he stretches his arms out and he says, this much. It was on that cross towards the east and towards the west. That's how far he carried our sins. So let me say this to you in applying this point to our lives. This morning, you are either bearing the weight of your sins or the suffering servant is bearing them for you. Either you are weighed down with the guilt and the bondage to lust and to false gods and false expectations and lustful desires, or he is bearing the weight of that sin and he has borne it for you. You know what's interesting about these words, bearing and carrying? What's interesting is that Isaiah used them earlier in Isaiah 46. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 46 and look at verses 6 and 7. This is why it's so good to compare Scripture with Scripture, read in context. Notice what Isaiah 46, 6 through 7 says. God is saying, and He's talking about idolaters who worship false gods. Those, verse 6, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and they bow down, indeed, they worship it. But look at verse 7. What do you have to do when you make a false god? They lift it upon their shoulder, and they carry it. You know, they say, hey, make me a false god. Okay, it's made. Okay, let me put it on my shoulder. Now I I bear the burden. It's the same word. And then I carry it to where I want to put it, and then I place it down. I set it in its place, and it stands there. But look at the rest of verse 7. It does not move from its place. It's a dead god. It, It, Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. So here's the idea. What kind of God are you serving this morning? Is it a God that you not only have to bear the weight of your own sin, but you have to bear your God around? You have to bear his rituals. You have to appease him and feed him. It's sad. I've been in homes that have idols and they place food, but the food is never eaten. Because they, they cannot eat. And the idol must be moved around because it cannot walk. It's not the living God. But here's what I want you to do. is Look before that in chapter 46. Move up to verse 3. And look at the contrast. Look at Isaiah 46 verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. 
You who have been born by me, carried, there's the idea, from birth, and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. Take heart. And even to your grain ears, grain years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. Isn't that amazing? This living God not only bears our sins, but what he's saying is, I bear you, I will bear and carry you and deliver you for your whole life all the way to your, when your head turns gray. So I ask you again, is the God you serve one that you must still bear the weight of your own sin and work your way to appease him? Or do you have a, a substitute, one who takes your punishment, bears it on their shoulders and carries it away so that you can be forgiven. All I can say is I'm so glad that Jesus took the punishment for my sins. He is the fulfillment of this prediction. And it was made 700 years before he was born. But you know what Isaiah 56 says? I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from the humiliation and spitting. He took our punishment. How bad was the punishment? Look at point number two. He died in our place. Why did he have to suffer? He took our punishment for our sins, but he died in our place. And that's the key of verse five. Look at verse five. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Here's the substitution in penal substitutionary atonement. As one uh, commentator on Isaiah put it, He does not suffer, the servant does not suffer merely as a result of the sins of the people, but in the place of the people. He suffers for them, and because of that, they do not need to experience the result of their sin, which is a death penalty, physical death, spiritual death, and ultimately eternal death, which involves eternal conscious torment, suffering forever for the sinfulness before a holy God. So I have three questions I want us to ask about how how the three questions about dying in our place. So let's look at the first one. The first one is this. How great was his punishment? Well, let me just be blunt. It was to the point of utter death. And we see this in the words pierced through and crushed. These words are used in the Bible to refer very often to a fatal death blow. And that's certainly what we see here. In fact, that word pierced, is used three times in the prophetic word of God to refer to the piercing of the coming Messiah. We see it here in verse 5. We read about it in Psalm twenty-two sixteen. Listen to Psalm twenty-two sixteen. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. These, these are centuries before the Roman Empire and they're, 
their brutal execution by crucifixion. And then Zechariah 12.10 speaks of that future day at the second coming when the nation of Israel, Israel will look up and see the coming of the Lord. And, they, and it says in Zechariah 12.10, they will look up and see the one whom they have pierced and crushed. Not only pierced through, but crushed. Some Bibles translate bruised, but that doesn't capture the idea. Uh, uh, it can mean that, but the idea is being crushed to the point of violent crushing. And it includes being crushed by the weight of our sins spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. Because our sin encompasses all who we are and all who we are must be must be judged by God and so the sinless substitute was crushed to death by the weight of the sins of the world now here's the second question why did he have to die so brutally why did it have to be so brutal and the answer is he suffered eternal death because of our sinful lifestyle and our rebel hearts. Notice he was pierced through for our transgressions. And a transgression is where we say, oh, has God drawn a line in the sand? Okay, I'll be just like my kids. I'll get as close to it and then I'll inch over it. Or iniquities means we're a rebel at heart and we don't care what God has said. Now, none of us would probably say that about ourselves. But when we really see our heart in light of His holiness, we all know that we have transgressed the law of God. And in our hearts, we are prone to rebel against who He is. If we had time, I'd take you to Isaiah 1, 3 through 6, where God uses the same words of bruised and crushed to describe the sinful condition of the nation of Israel. But here's the beautiful good news. The Lord has sent His servant to take upon Himself our crushing and our piercing. So here's the third question. What will be the result of His death in the place of sin-sick rebels? And the answer is in the last part of verse 5. He will be disciplined severely, but it's going to be for our well-being. The word there is shalom, the total reconciliation, peace, shalom. We will be reconciled with God. He'll be disciplined, but it has a redemptive purpose to reconcile us to God. His scourging will result in our healing. He will be lashed and wounds will be ripped open through the lashing and the scourging that he took. And yet, as he is wounded, we have the potential of being healed. And those who respond to the gospel will be healed by his wounds. So you see, it is violent and there is great judgment here. But I want to assure you, it has a redemptive purpose. This wasn't angry child abuse of a raging father who gets his kick out of beating his son. This is a loving heavenly father and his loving son together doing 
what is necessary to save a rebel world that was worthy of being so judged, but the substitute took his place. You see, their goal was to open a way for us to be reconciled. It was a way for us to find peace with God and to find wholeness. Because here's the deal. Sin fractures every area of our lives. It separates us from God, but it separates us from one another. And to be honest, within our hearts, it separates us from ourselves. But what God desires to do is to bring shalom to your life. What God desires to do is to reconcile you to Himself and to totally restore your life. Now, that won't happen until the second coming, but He can begin that process in your hearts this morning. So, why did the servant suffer so shamefully? Why did he die so brutally? He took our punishment, penal, verse 4. He died in our place, substitutionary, verse 5. And number three, he paid our penalty. He paid our penalty, verse 6. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Look at verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. I want you to see in this word picture of sheep and a whole flock that all of humanity is one flock. The whole human race has gone astray from God. But notice, each of us has turned to his own way. So there's a sense in which all of humanity are sinners, but that's because each of us individually has willfully wandered away. Each of us has our own unique rebellion. Each of us has our own ways in which we try to, to get around the law of God and And we have our own ways of loving things and people more than we love God. And so what happens here is we want to see what does this say about us as humans? It's not a pretty picture because here's what it says. It says basically we are like single-minded, stubborn sheep who often scatter out of fear. Single-minded, stubborn sheep who often scatter out of fear. Think, sheep will easily run into deadly danger just because they're following that next clump of grass. And this made me think of kids. When kids are playing ball and their ball uh, rolls into the street, what do kids do? They run after that ball. And nine times out of ten, they're not going to look left and right They're going to just run after what they want, and boom, they can be run over immediately. And think about your kids. You say, come here. And what do they often say? No. Come here. They'll go the opposite way. And that is what sheep are like. And it's not just kids that are like that. I'm that way. You're that way. This is what humanity is like. But here's the good news in this verse and it's this what does it say about the lord as a loving 
and holy God. Look again at, this, at the last part of verse 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Who is orchestrating all of this? The Lord. And it's in all caps. It's the I am God. It is Yahweh, the ever-present Redeemer, the great promise keeper of the Old Testament. The Lord is the one who has caused this to happen. Not because He's angry and vengeful, but because He's just and sin has to be judged. But He is loving and so He makes sure there is a way for sinners to be reconciled with, his, with, him, with Himself. So here's the, the radical thought of this verse 6. The Lord Himself has acted as the priest to sacrifice His own Son as our sacrificial substitute. The Father has acted as the priest in the sacrificing of His own Son who has given Himself up willingly and voluntarily in order that they both might provide a way to atone for the sins of the world. But why did God do this? Why did God the Father do this? Why did God the Son do this? Why did the Father come up with this when it meant sacrificing His Son? Why did the Son so willingly volunteer when He knew it would involve such suffering? And the answer is simply this. The Lord and His servant, the Son of God, did this for the fame of their name. And they did it out of love for lost sheep who willfully wander away from their Creator and their Redeemer. So here's what I want to end with. I want us to step back. And I want you right there at home. I want you to marvel at the amazing grace of God in penal substitutionary atonement. And I want you to see three things that I think this passage should really imprint on our hearts. And the first is this. Sin is this costly and deadly. Our sin is this costly and deadly. When we fail to do what God requires, when we do what God prohibits, when our hearts are bent to be our own masters and rulers of our lives. Oh, we may go to church. We may do religious things. We may be give charitably. We may do a lot of good things. But in our heart of hearts, we are the kings who sit on the throne of our hearts. When we do that, this is how great our sin offense is to a holy God. We are like sheep. We're born with a nature that prompts us to go away. And like sheep, we foolishly decide to go our own way. By nature and by choice, we are sinners. And this is serious, serious. The second thing I want you to see is that God the Father is this just and this merciful. 
I want you to see that we're in the Old Testament. We're in one of the prophets. You know those guys that were all hellfire and turn or burn? Repent, the end is near. That is a part of their message. But right here we see John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament who loves you and loves me and desires to reconcile himself with you this morning. And the third thing we see is God the Son is this obedient and loving. 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25, the Apostle Peter takes the prediction of Isaiah and 700 years later reveals how it's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, listen to 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He is our sacrificial substitute. For by his wounds... You were healed, for you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Oh, beloved, in the Old Testament, the sheep would die for the shepherd. But here in the Old Testament, God is saying the shepherd of our souls has died for his sheep. And so, here's what we see. Here's what we see. And it ties together last week's lesson. Now we see. Now we see. The we in this passage. The servant suffering from God's perspective. And here's what I hope you take away this morning. The servant was suffering for our sins as our sacrificial substitute. And that glorious doctrine is penal substitutionary atonement. But I want to end with this. And it builds off of last week. You and me can be the we in this passage. But the reason that you and me can be the we is because of what He did in our place. You and me. We can be a part of God's saved remnant because of what He did in our place. But understand this. It only is saving if you receive Him. It's only saving if you will turn from your own idolatry, your own sins, whatever those sins may be. And if you recognize, I just don't need a makeover I need to be converted from the inside out. And so you turn from self-reliance and self-rule in order to receive the sacrificial substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I want you to understand this. His death 
on the cross as our substitute was sufficient for all of us, but it is only efficient for those who repent and receive Him as the Lamb of God. You see in that last verse 6, all of us bookends in the Hebrew, both ends of that verse. All of us are wandering lost sheep. And yet He has put upon Him the sins of all of us. Sufficient for all, but only efficient. When we hear the shepherd call our name, and when he calls, we answer. And in repentance and faith, we put our trust in him. I hope that you do that. You can do that right now. And if you do, contact us. You can mention it in the comments. We will reach out to you. But I want to end our lesson today with a blessing that comes from Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. So if you bow your heads with me, I want to pray this blessing of Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 over you and over myself. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't forget, there are family worship ideas and songs to watch on YouTube to enhance your worship. We'll see you here, Lord willing, next Sunday at the same time, at the same place. We will be praying for you.